Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, All Things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything is connected. Today, we're continuing our journey with still a little Nick in time, connecting through our man Nick, two of the key players in the life and death of Marilyn Monroe, Peter Lawford and Frank Sinatra, with a little Rat Pack 2.0 on the side. Before we begin today, I want to give some huge thanks and shout outs. Got our spyglass here to recognize our newest supporters on Patreon.com. Thank you. Thank you, Ashley C. and JPM. Y'all are amazing. Joining the community over there, getting ad-free episodes and bonus episodes too. Tremendous thanks to the both of you and all of our Patreon supporters. And thanks to you for joining us today as we continue our investigation. Dominic Dunn, as we know, connects through both Peter Lawford and Frank Sinatra. Dominic and Lenny were neighbors with Peter and his wife, Patricia Kennedy. Between Dominic Dunn and Frank Sinatra, too many connections really to count between that 1950s production of Our Town all the way to that infamous night at the Daisy. This episode will make a through line with the on-again, off-again relationship between Frank Sinatra and Peter Lawford, along with the makings of the Rat Pack 2.0 to lead us all back around to the mirror ball of Marilyn Monroe. Let's investigate. In today's episode, we are going to pick up with two of the major players in the life and death of Marilyn Monroe, Peter Lawford and Frank Sinatra. I want to bring in a little bit more to our story about these two characters before we return back to our conclusion of our Marilyn arc next week. Peter and Frank have a really complicated history and a long one. These two have been sniffing around each other for quite a while. Remember Peter Lawford with his terribly pushy mom gets him to Hollywood in the early 1940s and Peter Lawford has injured one of his arms in a childhood accident. He's not eligible to fight within World War II, but Peter's mom knows that Peter sure can be a charming on-screen presence for Hollywood that needs as many available males as they can get at this point. We talked about this in an earlier episode, but I want to bring Peter here into 1942, co-starring in A Yank at Eaton alongside Mickey Rooney. Peter Lawford at this time meets Mickey's wife, the lovely Ava Gardner. Travel back in time on Done and Done back to episode 13 for Dominic Dunn's interview with Ava Gardner. What a goddess. We love Ava around here. But it is in this early 1940s time frame that Peter Lawford and Ava Gardner do become friends. Peter will even be the one to reveal all to Ava about Mickey's philandering, leaving the couple, Mickey and Ava, divorcing a year and about six days after they originally united in marriage. Ava and Peter do date for a little while, but it's never really a full-on passionate love affair or anything. If we go ahead and speed up our time frame here to 1944, Frank Sinatra will finally achieve his dream of 
becoming an MGM recording star. Frank has done the work going from small clubs, he's discovered, and wowza. Frank Sinatra will do just about anything to achieve his dreams of stardom. It is in the spring of this year, 1944, that Frank is making $1.5 million on this hot new MGM contract, currently in his first marriage to Big Nancy. There is a party one day for Henry Ford II, hosted by Louis B. Mayer, and it is here that Frank and Peter will meet for the first time. Frank Sinatra at this point is way more famous than Peter Lawford. It barely makes a blip in either of their worlds. Not really a big deal. There is one thing to note here that is key to our story, as by this time Frank has also met Ava Gardner. Back in the days when she was married to Mickey Rooney, Frank Sinatra will see Ava at Macombo one night, famous legendary nightclub, and flirts with Ava saying, why didn't I meet you before Mickey? Then I could have married you myself. I mean, sure, Frank, except you're already married to Big Nancy, but that's not going to stop Frank Sinatra soon enough. Frank and Peter will star together, and it happened in Brooklyn. This is 1947, and the two do become friends while filming. But then, remember, there's a little bit of a commotion here. Peter Lawford gets wonderful reviews, and Frank Sinatra is mad about it. By 1947, though, the two know each other. They've sniffed around each other. We're hanging out, not hanging out anymore. Frank Sinatra is not a big Peter Lawford fan. Let's skip ahead a few years now to 1951. Frank Sinatra will get his girl, Ava Gardner. Ava in this year will take Frank Sinatra as her third husband, this is a few years after the divorce from her husband number two, Artie Shaw. But the thing you want to know about Frank Sinatra and Ava Gardner and their relationship, it is volatile. The couple will separate in 1953, and it is to Peter Lawford that Ava Gardner turns to for comfort and consolation. Again, this is not a love affair or anything like it. They're very good friends. Just the previous year, 1952, Peter Lawford has met Patricia Kennedy at the 1952 Republican National Convention held in Chicago. Peter and Patricia meet through Henry Ford II. The Fords are friends with the Kennedys, all down in Palm Beach, Florida. Patricia and Peter write to each other. They meet when they're in the same town for drinks and poker games. Remember, Peter and Patricia do marry in April of 1954, this is much to the dismay of Patricia's father, Joe Kennedy, but alas, before the marriage between those two. Let's talk about what happens October 29th of 1953. MGM will formally announce the separation of Frank Sinatra and Ava Gardner. Ava, at this time, reveals to the press that the marriage is over, although she says she will always love Frank. Ava is taking off to Rome, Italy to film the Barefoot Contessa with her co-star Humphrey Bogart. Frank, for his part, a little sullen, pretty upset. I dare say Frank Sinatra never really does get over Ava Gardner. When Ava's filming is wrapped for the Barefoot Contessa, Ava comes home. She's out having a nice dinner with a friend in Beverly Hills with a, oh, cool, surprise. There's her old friend, Peter Lawford. 
He's at the same place she's having dinner. He's at the bar having a drink with his manager, Milt Evans. Greetings are exchanged, and a plan is made to have a drink together between Ava and Peter after everyone has dinner. Super cool, all very innocent. Ava and Frank do have that drink. They sit at a table outside the restaurant and just having a good old time, really. Two friends chatting it up, laughing about all their old days at MGM. Once the drink is done, the two say goodnight and they go their separate ways. And that's really where the story should have ended. There's no more to the story than that. But alas, the story does not end here. We have infamous gossip columnist Luella Parsons to thank for that. As an hour after the innocent drink has all been completed, the glasses are cleared from the outside table, it is Milt Ebbins that gets a phone call from the famous gossip columnist Luella Parsons, in which Milt does confirm to Luella that the two, Peter and Ava, did have a drink. It was a chance encounter. All that jazz. The following day, the headline for Luella Parsons' column reads, Ava's first date back in the U.S. is Peter Lawford. Oh, goodness. Frank Sinatra, never really an even-tempered guy. Recently separated from Ava, Frank's going to get mad. He's going to get hopping mad, and he is going to call, Frank Sinatra is, Peter Lawford at 3 a.m., yelling at Peter, What in the, all the expletives are you doing going out with Ava? Do you want both of your legs broken? And poor Peter Lawford is like, but it wasn't a date. And Frank Sinatra doesn't want to hear that. More expletives hangs up the phone. Peter Lawford's terribly upset. He doesn't want the wrath of Frank Sinatra and would probably, quite frankly, prefer for his legs not to be broken. Peter finds out that Frank is staying with Jimmy Van Heusen in New York, and Peter will pick an appropriate time, you know, during the day, to call Jimmy. And Jimmy will reassure Peter, just let it blow over. Frank will calm down. Peter isn't the only one, though, trying to smooth over the delicate, easily hurt feelings of Frank Sinatra. Milt Evans is as well. Milt will call Frank Sinatra and tell him that he was there for the whole thing. It certainly was not a date. There's nothing happening between the two of them. All of this is for naught. Frank Sinatra is mad, furious, super angry with Peter, which seems like kind of a misdirection as Frank Sinatra is separated from Ava, but alas, Frank Sinatra will not talk to Peter Lawford for a very, very long time. Now's a terrific time to take a quick break here from our sponsors this week. When we come back, we're going to figure out how these two get reunited. Okay, investigators, we're going to move the timeline of our story up here to 1956 or so. Peter and Patricia have been invited to dinner at the home of Gary Cooper, and Peter is running late this evening. He has burned his hand while doing a guest appearance on the Jimmy Durante show, and due to him being a little late, when Peter does arrive, he finds his wife, Patricia, seated next to Frank Sinatra. Peter's a little surprised to see Frank Sinatra acting like a perfect gentleman. Acts like none of the stuff that happened back in 1947 
that happened back in 1953 ever happened. Frank Sinatra is going to get real chummy with both Peter and Patricia at this point. Could it be perhaps that Frank Sinatra wants to get close to the couple as Patricia's brother Jack is an up-and-coming senator with huge political ambitions? If you ask me, that is most certainly probably the answer. But Frank Sinatra, at this point, almost divorced from Ava Gardner, maybe just looking for a few new friends. The Kennedy Lawfords fulfill that requirement. Soon enough, Peter and Patricia have their own spare bedroom at Frank Sinatra's Palm Springs home. Frank has bought this home in 1947 out in Palm Springs, and Palm Springs, being about 120 miles away from Hollywood, becomes the getaway for Hollywood stars. The Kennedy Lawfords are coming frequently to Frank's home. They'll keep extra sets of clothes there. That's how frequently they are guests. Frank and Peter and Patricia all go to Europe together on vacation, too. Patricia Kennedy will even use Francis in honor of Frank Sinatra as her daughter's middle name in 1958. That's how much Patricia really does like old blue eyes. Patricia and Peter and Frank all party down for New Year's Eve in 1958 at a private party at Romanoff's. Partying that night with them are also Natalie Wood and Robert Wagner. By July of 1959, the whole group is back to celebrate Natalie's 21st birthday. Same location for the party, that's Romanov's. Dean Martin will come along this time as well. By 1959, word is around Hollywood that Jack is planning a run for president. This is all the news at the Saturday night parties at Peter and Patricia's beach home in Santa Monica. Peter and Patricia known for their legendary Saturday night parties. And honestly, it's not just socially that Frank and Peter are moving together. They are also going to get into business together with a little restaurant they opened named Puccini. Puccini was located at 224 South Beverly Drive, right across from the William Morris Agency. Puccini becomes an industry hotspot, for a little slice of time between 1958 and 1961. This place used to be known as the Harlequin Club, but the two friends decide to go into fine dining together. This place is well known for its robust food menu. With your meal, along comes anapasto, soup, spaghetti, and ice cream too, and that's alongside your entree. You can get lobster, Veal or chicken, all for less than five bucks, and that's for the whole Monty of the dinner. Dishes are named after the legends of the day. The Chicken George Raft will cost you three twenty-five. The most expensive thing on the menu is the New York sirloin for six dollars and fifty cents. But I wouldn't want you to spend all that good money as if you were going to see Frank Sinatra or Peter Lawford working at the place. Although there is a pretty cool VIP room that at this time will host the Rat Pack 2.0. Now, remember from a few episodes ago, it is Humphrey Bogart that brings the original Rat Pack together. Lauren Bacall, Betty, names them. 
The couple's son, Stephen Bogart, recalls that the original members of the group, the first Rat Pack, Frank Sinatra, chairman of the board, Judy Garland, was the first vice president, Sid Luft was the cage manager, Humphrey Bogart was the rat in charge of public relations, Swifty Lazar was the recording secretary and treasurer, Nathaniel Benchley was the historian. This is the 1950s version. There's a whole new reinvention of the Rat Pack, though, this time in 1960. And this is probably the one that we are all a little bit more familiar with. This Rat Pack, composed of Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., Joey Bishop, and Peter Lawford. The thing to me that is the most interesting about this reiteration of the Rat Pack 2.0, it happens purely by accident. Let's talk about it. By 1959-1960, Frank Sinatra is firmly cemented into the Kennedy-Lawford conglomerate. Frank is in with the Kennedys as well, Jack and Bobby. And Peter Lawford, not too long ago, invested in a movie property. He optioned it out. This property will eventually become Ocean's Eleven. Peter Lawford brings the option to Frank Sinatra. Frank Sinatra loves it. And Frank is going to recruit a new gang, actors and friends, and the talents that he knows to do this film with him. Ocean's Eleven begins filming on location in Las Vegas in January of 1960. The set locations are the five mafia-owned casinos of the time. It is no big secret, never was a big secret, that the Mafia and Frank Sinatra are always pretty tightly aligned. But this whole thing is a money-making venture for everyone. All the stars in the picture, the Mafia, and hey, January in Las Vegas, pretty good time to be there. Frank is performing at the Sands three times a year anyway in Las Vegas, so while filming Ocean's Eleven, Frank goes ahead and books himself in for a nightly show at the Sands. So imagine filming during the day, performing at night, having fun all the time, and Sammy and Dean are booked as well for shows at the Sands. So Sammy and Dean and Frank all get together and they're like, hey, this is good. We all have a nightly show. Let's just rotate them out. I'll do one night, you do the next, you do the following after that. Easy peasy. Nobody's too stressed for time. There is no Rat Pack at this point. It does not exist. But there is a three-week period beginning January the 20th, running through mid-February, that will create the Rat Pack 2.0. It is Dorothy Kilgallen. We covered her back in episode 23, that will coin this term for this particular group and name them the Rat Pack. So easy peasy, January. They're all still filming their slated Sammy, Dean, and Frank for alternating shows. These nightly shows last 60 minutes, one hour, and not a moment more. If you're a casino, you're using these shows to draw gamblers, people with money to lose into your establishment. But you don't want them sitting in that seat, not losing their money for any longer than an hour. 
We need the shows to get people to come in, but then we need you to get the people out the door so they can drink and lose some cash. Now, during that run, a ticket to Frank's show would cost you a cool $6.50. All of the cast at this point is staying at the Sands as well. But this time, Frank has hustled down the segregated policy of the Sands to insist that Sammy Davis Jr. be able to stay there as well. Frank and Sammy Davis Jr., bosom friends from the beginning of time, they'll do just about anything for each other. So here we have Frank and Dean and Sammy alternating headlines at the Sands in 60-minute shows. Rock on. Frank does the first one. Goes great. Dean does the next one. Fantastic. Sammy comes on third. And Sammy Davis's show is running long, and you don't do that. Frank Sinatra knows you can't do that. So Frank Sinatra will come on stage during Sammy's act and cut him off. Hey, I got to get Sammy to bed and walks him off the stage. Holy cats, this doesn't happen. Headliners don't crash in on other headliners. This is in bad taste. It was in bad taste then. It still is in bad taste. So Frank is back in rotation the next night. And this particular night, Dean, taking a cue from Frank the night before, comes on at the end of the set and takes Frank's hand, Dean does, and says, Frank needs to go to bed. And Frank Sinatra is mad. He's like, man, I'm in a tux. I'm doing my act. And now Dean's just on the stage with him, breaking into Frank's songs, kind of catcalling Frank. Frank, sing something shorter. That song's too long. The crowd has some questions. They're like, what is happening here? Is Dean Martin drunk? Is Frank Sinatra going to kill Dean Martin on stage? I mean, this is a heck of a show for less than seven bucks. This whole thing shocks the crowd. Now, Dean Martin, totally happy to play this game. Remember back in the day, Dean Martin had an act with Jerry Lewis for a long time. Lewis and Martin, they were the most popular entertainers around until they had a falling out. But in the Lewis and Martin routines all the way back, Jerry Lewis was the interrupter of Dean Martin. Horseplay, antics, just like the nonsense that's happening on the Las Vegas stage. The crowd is seeing something that they're familiar with, but they know they're seeing something pretty special. Word gets around Vegas. Crowds want to attend because they get to be in on the joke with Sammy, Dean, and Frank. The first time Dean Martin pulls this nonsense on Frank Sinatra, Frank's a little, he's a little startled, but Frank will relax. He'll roll with it and ends up getting laughs. No one laughs at Frank Sinatra shows, but Dean Martin has somehow made Frank Sinatra funny. The audience loves it. The crowd goes wild. They will leave, naturally, after that appropriate 60-minute mark. And now the crowds can't shut up about what just happened at the Copa Room. This is word-of-mouth marketing at its best. By the end of the first week in that run in January, the three of them, Frank, Dean, and Sammy, 
are now together in every single show. That's how popular this show becomes. Their antics sort of become the stuff of legend, and everyone has to be there for the show. The bar cart has now been brought onto the stage. People are flying in from Los Angeles, from New York, and everywhere else because they have to be part of this onstage magic. Goodness, attended by everybody, famous stars included, Kirk Douglas, Cary Grant, Rosalind Russell, Gregory Peck, Marilyn Monroe will make a few appearances as well, even John Kennedy. The legends and tales about this particular show are growing, and The Sands, by early February, has over 18,000 requests for its 200 available rooms. But hey, we got a whole crew of Ocean's Eleven, so soon enough, Peter Lawford and Joey Bishop are getting in on the action on stage, and this becomes Bedlam. Joey Bishop's special role is introducing everyone and watching the clock for that 60 minutes to get everybody off the stage. Now, I can't say that any of this act is really good. By today's standards, it's not at all. It's juvenile. It's kind of crude. Jokes at ethnicity are never appropriate. And poor Sammy Davis, right? Like, these are boys behaving badly. It's not exactly entertaining now. But at the time, it is revolutionary. So the gang, the Rat Pack, making a movie during all of this. I just find it so remarkable that the Rat Pack that we think of with this fully bonded idea and this cool guy club just isn't so. It happens by total accident because the mafia needed to get Sammy Davis Jr., off the stage in a tight 60 minutes. That's it. It is all fun and games for now in early 1960. And as we begin to wrap up today, I do want to talk a little bit about the dynamics between Frank and Peter. I've taken a few observations here from Bruce Fessier. Fessier writes for the Desert Sun back in 2015 and has a few key observations that I kind of find fascinating here. Quoting from this piece, Sinatra is clearly associating with Lawford for more than his English manner. They have things in common like a love of women, alcohol, and pranks. Stewart, this is Patricia Stewart, one of Peter Lawford's wives after the divorce from Patricia Kennedy, Next wife, Patricia Stewart, says about Peter and Frank, they're like two bad kids let out with a lot of money. They were both handsome men and both very flawed. I think they both liked lots of women around them. I think it was like that with most of the people that Peter was around. Sinatra craves class, and Lawford exudes it. So ostentatiously, he doesn't even use the word. He calls it Alan. Sinatra comports himself like a gentleman, but he never forgets his Hoboken roots. He isn't embarrassed that his father doesn't speak with his cultivated diction, and he's not reticent about solving problems with his fists. That's why people say he's genuine. Maybe that's what bugs Sinatra about Lawford. Lawford feels almost obligated to reflect his status as the son of a knighted soldier 
and a nephew of a Wimbledon champion. He's compelled to show more style than the other Rat Packers. They buy their mohair suits at DeVore's in Hollywood and Palm Springs. Lawford buys his from Douglas Hayward of Mount Street in London. And Sinatra knows Lawford came to America in poverty, just like so many of the immigrants his mother helped. This is Patricia Stewart Lawford again. I do think he resented Peter, talking about Frank, because Peter was an entirely different cut of cloth. Peter was to the manor born, like nursery fed. Frank used him to lend a little bit more than the crazy goofy guys hanging out in Vegas. He gave the Rat Pack their handsome Englishman, but Peter was someone he could pick on because he couldn't sing that well. Frank Sinatra will continue to pick on Peter. Things are going to get real dicey between Peter and Frank the following year, and we will be talking about that story in our next episode. Our next Dunday will come back with Marilyn Monroe in 1960, attending those legendary performances at the Sands with her friends in the newly named Rat Pack. It really all does come together, investigators. I cannot tell you how grateful I am. You are here with me for the ride. Thank you for listening. Thanks for telling your friends, for your kind reviews and your emails. An extra special thanks to our Patreon supporters. If you need more Done and Done before the next episode, we do have more than a dozen bonus episodes over at patreon.com slash done and done, always connected in the most delightful way. This past week, we went to a marvelous party with Noel Coward. Oh, what didn't our man Nick get into? Again, thanks everybody for tuning in. Y'all are the very best until we meet again. Stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.